This podcast is brought to you by public.com, the investing social network. Public is a free app where you can own the companies you believe in and share ideas in a community of investors. There are a few investing apps out there, but here's what's different about public. There are social features that allow people to share and discover new ideas, and the app supports responsible investing habits, so they don't encourage day trading, nor do they offer margin accounts or options. Features like safety labels on potentially risky stocks give members more complete context. Public has also opted out of payment for order flow, so they don't sell your trades to third parties. Public's community is about 40% women and 45% people of color, so its members come from all sorts of backgrounds and walks of life. Conversations on public span deep dives into new IPOs, as well as general insights on financial wellness and category trends. You can even use group chats to build investing clubs with your friends. Head over to public.com to sign up and start with a free slice of stock. Get going with as little as $1, and if you're looking to transfer your portfolio over from another brokerage, they'll even cover fees for accounts valued at over $150. Some fine print, valid for U.S. residents 18 years and older, and subject to account approval. See public.com slash disclosures. Hi, everyone. It's Julie Verhage Greenberg here with your Tux Time podcast from Fintech Today, where we talk about all things fintech. And in this episode, I am joined by special guest Wiza Jalakasi, who is a vice president at Chipper Cash, a payment startup based in Africa that has been backed by Jeff Bezos, Ripit Capital and more. Wiza, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Julie, for inviting me. Really excited to be here. Yeah, so the payments industry in Africa, I've written about a little bit, and it was inspired by one of your tweets, as well as just everything that's going on in the payment space with um, the coronavirus, etc. cetera. Uh, why don't we start by you just giving us a little bit of a lay of the land on what Chipper does and like what payments in Africa is actually like? Because I feel like, like me, a lot of you people that are listening to this podcast have probably never been to Africa and don't know what the like payments lifestyle is. Are people using cards? Are they using cash? Are they using QR codes like they do in Asia? Like what's the current state? Okay, awesome. So yeah, um, I would describe uh, Africa as a mobile money first market. Um, so people typically use their mobile phones um, to perform real-time, instantly settling peer-to-peer -peer transactions. That's by far the biggest usage. Um, the most famous example that many people cite is M-Pesa, which operates in several African countries, uh, but has its biggest presence in Kenya. And about 60 to 70% of Kenya's GDP today um, is transacted digitally through M-Pesa. So it's a very big um, system. Um, on the other side in West Africa, you have a lot of bank-led innovation, uh, particularly in Nigeria. So in Nigeria, you still have mobile as an interface to consume digital payments, but then the entire backend infrastructure is powered by banks. And uh, again, it's, it's really, really performant instant settlements for peer-to-peer -peer transactions. Um, so it's, it's not like the, the US where um, you typically might have to wait a few hours or a day or two for a transaction to clear, um, simply because like the banking infrastructure wasn't there previously. So it was built in almost a digitally native way. 
Um, and then, you know, uh, in South Africa, Southern Africa, well, Southern Africa, except South Africa, uh, is still mostly like mobile money led. Um, South Africa is very heavy on banks. So it's, 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 it's most similar, I think, to the U.S. and Western markets where you have a lot of cards and card led technologies. Apple Pay's first African market is in South Africa. They just launched last week. Um, and then the Middle East and North Africa is also a mix of card and mobile solutions. So it's a bit all over the place. And there's a lot of like fragmented solutions, which is um, the biggest challenge, I think, right now, just like consolidating all these players. And, you know, there are startups that are building out infrastructure like that. So we're we're pretty excited to be in that space. Now, Chipper specifically is a mobile money solution that lets you move money between all these different types of mobile money and mobile banking services across borders. We do that in eight markets. Um, we have about 4 million users. And yeah, it's a pretty exciting time for FinTech in Africa today. What has traction been like during COVID? Have you seen a pickup or were things, you know, already growing quite a bit since this was um, uh, an area of demand for a lot of people in Africa with all these different systems going around? Yeah, so um, when, when African countries started to go into lockdown, we saw a slight decline in activity. Uh, but immediately afterwards, what happened is that the core mobile money operators, some of the biggest on the continent, include Safaricom and PESA, um, MTN Group, who operate in about, I think, 10 different African countries, um, Airtel Group, also operating in several different African countries. They dramatically reduced or made free the cost of transactions um, of, of below a certain value. And this like incentivized a lot of people to digitize their cash and be to be able to move it around and then that really like trickled down to companies like chipper because we build on top of the existing mobile money infrastructure um and we saw a huge uptake um in volumes in fact i think 2020 made up 80 percent of our total process volumes to date um and i can't get into specifics but it was a really great year blew um a lot of our expectations out of the water and yeah it's been an accelerant so people are are really adopting digital financial services because of the pandemic you mentioned that 2020 was 80 percent of total volume ever when did volume start you were founded in what 2018 yeah, 2018, 2017, uh, I, have, I have transaction data from, from 2017, but it was like, you know, mostly like a pilot stage phase thingy. And then like, we only really launched towards the end of 2018. And then like a lot of traction was in 2019. And then like 2020 was when we really just like took off. Okay. And you guys just raised a funding round recently too. What is that money going to be used towards? Is it expanding into more African countries, launching new products or services? Yeah. So it's, it's a bit of a mix uh, of everything. Biggest thing is just talent. Um, we're really bringing in a lot of like talented people from all over the world. I have, I'm currently based in Johannesburg, South Africa, but I've got teammates um, in from San Francisco all the way to Melbourne and like all the way in between. We have people all over the, all over the world, people in Europe, people in Latin America. So we're really trying to like bring on board the best possible people um, who are interested in working on this problem. And then secondly, um, there is a fragmented regulation challenge on the continent in that like um, we talk about Africa as this like one contiguous place, but like it's 54 different African countries that have got 54 different central banks that have got their own regulatory requirements. And a big part of that is that 
you typically need to invest some capital into a market in order to get their correct license to be able to hold people's money. And that's like just a very capital intensive exercise. So scaling for us is not uh, a matter of like flipping a few switches. We typically have to like, you know, get into a country, incorporate, um, partner with a bank or get some form of license. And that that is pretty costly. Um, and then geographical expansion is something that we've been pretty keen on. Um, we've been growing very quickly uh, since inception, and we're looking to work with partners to uh, add additional corridors to the to to the cheaper uh, footprint. Currently, we're in uh, eight countries, including the UK. Uh, we're very, launching in the US very very soon, um, and we're hoping to do maybe five to ten other countries um, during the course of 2021. So, pretty excited about that. Um, lots and lots of fun. Something else that I want to touch on too, you mentioned the the cost of transacting too, where during COVID, a lot of places like reduced that cost. Explain that a little bit to me, because in the US, like merchants pay a fee whenever someone uses a card, whether it's point of sale or online. And then if I want to transfer money out of my Venmo instantly, I have to pay a fee versus waiting a few days where it would be free. What does that look like in the African market? Yeah, sure. So I'm, I'm going to give a long sort of like nuanced answer just because it's different in different parts of the continent. Um, but like the rationale was that at the start of the pandemic, there was some, and you know, I'm not a medical expert, so I can't speak to the legitimacy of this, but there, there was some thinking around how cash could be a vector um, for the spread of the virus because it's like, you know, uh, people touch it, right? And, you know, Africa is a very cash heavy society. Over 95% of transactions today still take place in cash. Um, and um, a lot of the government responses were suggesting like, okay, why don't we use all of the digital payment methods that we have? And the biggest barrier to adoption of that by far was cost. So the, the mobile network operator groups that operate these mobile financial services, the largest ones all came together and said like, okay, as a corporate um, citizen, I think it would be responsible of us to um, reduce the cost of these transactions. So for example, Safaricom in Kenya waived the cost, the complete cost of transactions under uh, $10, the equivalent of $10 in, in value between peers. And like the vast majority of peer-to-peer uh, -peer mobile transactions are under $10. So what that led to was um, a huge, huge surge in adoption. People were very paranoid to touch cash. So if you could offer them a digital payment method, that was like typically more convenient. And um that coupled with a big drive towards like e-commerce um, because you could grocery stores started offering uh, real-time delivery. And in, in, in cities like Nairobi, Kenya, Kampala, Uganda, where you have like this massive um, network of motorcycle taxis, like you can get your groceries delivered in like 40 minutes. Like it's that's the standard time, right? It's not like you have to pay extra for that. That's like the standard time. So that I think those two things have really like driven a behavior change that is going to remain in the post-pandemic world because people have come to appreciate the conveniences that come with like digital financial services and then some of the products that it unlocks um and so yeah that's those are the two biggest things and then like on the transfers right like a lot of bank not only bank transfers but a lot of peer-to-peer -peer transfers are natively instant like they were just designed that way so all mobile money transfers are instant there's no settlement time um in nigeria when you are making a bank transfer from one bank account to another bank account, even if it is in a different bank, the default system, which is the equivalent of, I guess, the ACH in the US, the default system 
is an instant settlement system that is being championed by the central bank regulator. So in many African countries, um, when you do a bank transfer, it is instant or close to instant. Um, South Africa is an exception because it has legacy banking infrastructure. So you have electronic funds transfers here in South Africa, and those might take like a T plus one to, to settle. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a pretty interesting environment. And um, because that infrastructure instant, it means that people building on top of it have also been able to deliver like instant, instantaneous experiences and customers tend to appreciate that. It's fascinating because the episode before you, we had Stephanie Kirkpatrick of Oramon and they're obviously working on this problem in the US. And I love that you mentioned that you know, in parts of Africa, it's been easier because there wasn't this legacy system. And in other parts, it's been harder. And that's one of the things that Stephanie and her team have been working on is like the U.S. has a lot of legacy systems that you have to sort of just figure out ways to work with versus like rip out and build something new. Right. Like it's I think like she mentioned the episode that the last like five, 10 years have shown that trying to rip out these systems and build something new hasn't worked quite yet. So building on top of it, figuring out how to work with it just seems to be the better way um, to do it for cost effectiveness. And, you know, it might take time and whatnot, but it, it's really the only thing that you can do versus areas like parts of Africa, Asia that have been able to build these new systems, like you mentioned. Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally agree with that sentiment. And I think a big component of it is just like trust as a concept. And then you, there's like trust from the consumers. And then there's also trust from like the central authorities. Um, what we have been able to do really well at Chipper and what I see a lot of like really fast growing African fintechs doing is that they're not really big on words like disruption or trying to come across as trying to like disintermediate the existing players in the industry. Um, they're working with them, they're partnering with them to say like, how can we work together to improve the experience for the consumer? Because while you have the financial expertise, you understand how the systems work on the ground, they typically don't have like the capacity to do technology really well. And we're coming in to say like, okay, we're technology experts. I'm not a banker, I've never worked in a bank. But if I can bring these technology principles and put together a product on top of what already exists, we can unlock more value together. And I don't know how other parts of the world might view this, but like in Africa, it works because 95% of transactions are still in cash. So there's a market to be grown. There's no need for startups to compete with legacy infrastructure players. And that makes certain conversations easier in some sense. Makes sense. Uh, what about expansion. It's something that I've talked about a lot in terms of challenger banks because each market is so different. You guys, it sounds like each market in Africa alone is very different. Uh, how are you taking that into account when expanding across that region? And then you mentioned that you guys wanted to launch in the U.S. very soon as well. Yeah. So it is it is quite a big challenge because of this like regulatory fragmentation. Um, some African, Africa is divided into like economic zones. So you've got like ECOWAS on the West African side, you've got SADC on the Southern African side, you've got the Eastern African community, EAC on the Eastern side. And there are some for the Middle Eastern, uh, the North Africa region, but I'm not as um, knowledgeable uh, about that region. So the good thing is that like in these economic zones, some licenses allow you to operate in like multiple markets. So those are like obvious ones. So for example, um, in French speaking West Africa, you've got about, I think, eight plus countries that all speak the same language and use the same currency. So if you're able to get a license in there, you can then like serve that region really, really well. 
Um, for the rest of the continent, it is a bit fragmented. So we're really relying on partnerships. Um, we work very closely with partners who are really licensed in these regions and uh, tailor our value proposition to one, suit the consumers in that region, and then two, take advantage of the infrastructure that's there. We're not very big on trying to reinvent the wheel because um, institutions are very slow here. So trying to like get into every market, get a license and do everything the way that you might in other parts of the world would just like not work. So that's, that's the, the approach that we've been taking. Um, it is a bit of a challenge. Things do sometimes move slower than we'd like, but so far we're very happy with the results and um, a lot of the regulatory attitudes are changing and being and, and working towards being pro-digital uh, finance because there are some spillover effects that benefit other arms of the government. So, for example, um, you can easily account for and tax digital payments, but like with cash payments, it becomes like much harder. So the incentives are aligning really, really nicely, and we've been able to see the benefits of that. One other thing I want to dive into here is just broadening it out a bit. What else is going on in African fintech? Are there challenger banks? Are there trading platforms like Robinhood? What else is you know top of mind for people in that region? Yeah, there's uh, quite a bit going on. I, I would say that the most mature fintech market is Nigeria, and there's like several reasons why that's the case. Number one is just like the robustness of the legacy banking infrastructure. It's digitally native. Number two is that you've got like a central bank issued digital identifier that you can use to quickly share a KYC application between banking services. So think of it like it's called the BVN number. Think of it like a digital social security number that you can like instantly share the apps and then get access to all your information in a way that is compliant with the regulator. Um, so Nigeria has seen like a lot of uh, uptake with that. Um, you've got many challenger banks in Nigeria. You've got cryptocurrency trading platforms in Nigeria that are doing extremely well. Um, uh, Africa is one of the fastest growing crypto adoption regions in the world. Uh, as a result, you've got fractional stock trading in US apps. You've got like fully managed robo-advisor experiences. I think I'm not sure, but I think I might have more options for fractional stock investing in Nigeria than I might have in some parts of Europe. I know US, the US has got many options, but like definitely some parts of Europe. So there's definitely like a little bit of everything going on there. Um, the only challenge I would say is that like, you know, adoption is typically a bit slower because um, just the number of smartphone users is not as high as in other parts of the world. And then also those users may not have as much disposable income to be able um, to play around and experiment with things. But once they learn and understand how the technology works, um, cryptocurrency specifically has like provided an economic opportunity that didn't exist for the vast majority of young African people. And as a result, you see, like when somebody understands and how they, they get how crypto works, they put quite a bit of time and effort into learning how it works. And then the usage, the actual like retention um, of users of those apps is very high. So, yeah, it's, it's very interesting. Other markets are not as mature. Um, for example, Kenya has got really, really robust payments infrastructure that's primarily on top of M-Pesa, but then everything else is still like pretty much in its infancy. So if, if you're trying to build something in Kenya, you can easily figure out how you pay and get paid, but everything else is like <laughs> an absolute nightmare. Um, so it's, it's really early and there are so many opportunities in each of these countries for people to do things. I think we're very much at the start um, of, of what's going to be quite literally a revolution over the next few years. Even the core infrastructure players are starting to borrow from startup 
um, playbooks. For example, MTN Group, who operates the largest mobile money network on the continent, they're toying around with the idea of um, listing on a public exchange. If they do, the minimum valuation will likely be around $5 billion. So that's really, really exciting for people on the continent because it's happening for the first time. It's happening in a way that is unique to us with technologies that we own and understand better than nobody else on the planet. And the, the potential of that is just tremendous in my view. On the challenger bank side, what does the banking system currently look like? Is Are there a lot of people underbanked? And what in the U.S., a lot of challenger banks are either looking at niche markets, like you have Daylight that's working on the LGBTQ community, you have others that are working on the freelance community, and then someone like a Chime or a Current that is focused on either millennials or underserved people. So where are the challenger banks focusing in that region? So yeah, um, they typically use a, a niche as a market entry strategy to be able to capture a certain niche of users who make up a their power users who maybe drive transaction re revenues and, and, and the, that initial usage. But the vast majority of challenger banks are looking towards targeting the unbanked. And there are very many unbanked people on the continent. Um, there are some who are underbanked, uh, who these products typically appeal to, especially people who are accessing credit for the first time. So a lot of African countries, save for some in North Africa and South Africa specifically, do not have um, credit identity infrastructure. So the idea of you like getting a car on credit or getting a house on credit, like that concept just doesn't exist here. In Nigeria, if you're wanting to rent a house, you pay your rent a year upfront. So it's like, it's completely crazy. Like it's really, really chaotic. Um, and challenger banks are trying to break into that space to bring an additional layer of financial services that go beyond the transaction services for the people that are banked. And what has been interesting is that um, oftentimes in the media, I see uh, the growth of mobile money positioned against the growth of banks. But if you look at the actual data in many of these countries, what is happening is that uptake in bank accounts and mobile money are increasing in proportion. So um, there's a very large audience of people who have not interacted with any financial service in any sort of way that still have not been served. And the challenger banks are rightly preparing strategies to target those people. Now, the biggest challenge at present would be that most of these people, number one, may not have access to smartphone technologies. So distributing them is via legacy mobile um, technologies such as USSD. You can think of USSD as a command line um, for your phone. So you can like have these text-based interactions with financial services. And this is actually the largest distribution mechanism that exists for financial services on the continent. So like the likes of M-Pesa, the likes of the mobile banking in Nigeria, a lot of the usage is over these USSD style platforms. Once we start to see an increase in smartphones and smart feature phones, like the ones that are being manufactured by um, KaiOS, they're now I think the third largest um, uh, mobile phone operating system after um, uh, Android and iOS respectively, with significantly more market share than Windows Phone, which is something people are not like paying attention to. But once we have more of these um, users adopting those devices, I really think that the industry is going to really, really take off because the limitations um, of offline technologies are preventing growth at present. And here I thought putting up three months of rent when I moved to New York years ago was a lot of money. You're talking about putting up 12 months of rent. I can't even imagine. <laughs> yeah, that's 12 months minimum. Ghana is probably going to be two years up front. <laughs> it's pretty crazy. Wow. Wow. Well, I feel like I learned a ton in this conversation 
conversation today, Wisa. We're going to have to have you back again because I'm sure listeners are going to send me questions of other areas to dive into. I feel like we only scratched the surface on so many of these things. Um, but that is it for today's episode of Tux Time. If you enjoyed it, please rate us on Apple and Spotify podcasts. Um, otherwise, join us again on Thursday to talk to Koki Haziotis, who is back from her vacation. I'm sure she's got some good sun and a lot of good fintech talks for us. Thank you, Isa. Thank you so much, Julie. It has been so much fun. <laughs> Likewise. <laughs>